Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human, we have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way people have hard conversations. And we think we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. Since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. I just want to post for the record, uh, I cut 20 minutes of random dialogue out of our last episode <laughs> yeah, where, we're not for the do pod because it was completely wild. What um, were we even doing? I don't know. It's like we'd never recorded anything in our lives before. Don't worry, though. Hey, if you're a Patreon, you might at some point hear a lot of that cutout footage because it was kind of funny. Oh, yeah. But, uh, no, we were definitely humor was on point. It just was not on topic. Not even close. Anyway, yeah. speaking of being off topic. Yeah. So let's uh, let's transition into the actual episode here. <laughs> Hello again, everybody. And thank you for joining us this first week of December for another From the Headlines episode. Just a reminder on how these episodes work. Every other week, we take a break from our in-depth research to focus on a topic that's currently making headlines. This week, we want to talk about the Jelaine Maxwell trial, and we know that you can get the ins and the outs of the case and what's happening each day in the trial from pretty much any news source, so that's not what we're going to bring you here. Instead, we want to focus on how we believe that this case is being used to politicize the victimization of women and children through what social science researchers call a filter bubble. Correct. And also, since this is from a headline's uh, it's supposed to be research light er <laughs> comparatively, <laughs> but it's not. We have so many sources on this. It's one, light. It's light er. It's like light. Er. Is it? Did you did you count how many sources we have for this particular episode? No, I counted it's mine. A lot. I counted mine. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, it's because someone's an the, overachiever. Yeah, both of us. But I mean, that's one of the benefits of covering somebody specifically like Jelaine Maxwell and the whole story is that there's a ton of reporting on it that we can draw on a bunch of different sources that we can use to sort of build a more comprehensive picture and have a little more faith in what we are reading being accurate or at least mostly accurate, right? Right. Uh, you have multiple different sources who are reporting the same or similar things. That's a good indicator. It's not the end all be all, but it is a good indicator. Um, because of the sensitive nature of this topic, we definitely understand if you need to skip through the episode to avoid um, discussion of suicide, of abuse, um, and human trafficking. 
we'll give you clear cues when we're about to talk about one of those topics. Uh, but first, uh, we are going to talk about bubbles. Bubbles. Uh, bubbles. If, if anybody remembers Finding Nemo anymore, I feel like Gen oh Z gosh. is getting younger and younger and I'm getting older and older and they don't know my cool references anymore. Oh, man. Um, but no, specifically, we're talking about filter bubbles. Right. So what is a filter bubble anyway, right? How does this whole concept work? Well, whether we realize it or not, most of us very effectively curate the information that we receive every single day. That's right. I said it. No matter how angry it makes you or how redundant it seems, the information, especially the news that you consume, is completely within your control. Now, I know, right? Gasp. It's that whole good internet hygiene thing that we've been talking about. Mm. So before you shake your head and write me off as a conspiracy theorist for suggesting that you control the news cycle, allow me to explain what it is that I actually mean here. So each and every one of us engages in a series of filtering processes that influence the content that we encounter on the reg. A group of researchers published in the British Journal of Social Psychology did all of the hard work of categorizing these processes for us so that we can easily explain them to you. So ta, gents, for that. Um, And so as they explained it in their well-written article that is cited for your convenience in our show notes. The first set of processes that can be categorized as individual filters or cognitive motivational processes. These are largely subconscious processes that we go through when we're interacting with information uh, driven by our need to establish or boost social ideology and belonging and our need to avoid information that would ostracize us from, uh, from a group. Essentially, uh, we want to be accepted by and grow in standing with a group with which we identify. And we want to avoid information that would, I guess, keep us from being able to do so effectively, that would challenge our perceptions, essentially. So we intentionally seek out information uh, that allows us to accomplish that goal and avoid information that would work contrary to it. The keywords in this phrase include confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance. And yeah, we have an entire episode on those things. So if you are interested in learning more about them, go. We have it linked. It is uh, in the show notes and also on our website, which we'll talk about later. But um, those are incredibly powerful tools that influence how we perceive what is happening in the world. Then we have a second set of processes, which falls into the category of social filters. It's no secret that humans tend to form social relationships with people who share similar socio-demographic, behavioral, and interpersonal categories to our own, people who are like us. And we tend to disengage with, or even disconnect from, people whose descriptors are very different to ours. And this holds true IRL and also on the internet. I mean, I know that I unfollowed a whole lot of people in the time between Ahmaud Arbery's murder and the January 6th insurrection. Right. There were tons of people that I just disconnected from, disengaged with, uh, because there were thoughts and opinions flying that I just could not process in a healthy way. And then because we tend to pass information through our social networks, we're more likely to encounter information that reinforces the shared perspectives of the group that we belong to 
or the groups that we belong to, because we can do this in a whole host of social circles that are different, but also overlap. And because we want to stay a part of these groups, we're also less likely to introduce information that contradicts those shared perspectives. The final layer, the third layer layer of processes introduces technological filters. So that's right. We are talking again about the algorithm or the millions of them. Uh, but this time <laughs> right. we're not limiting our scope to social media. Robin's entire job revolves around the internet and how people use it. Um, so she has probably become more familiar than most of us with the phrase, the internet echo chamber. Oh, yes. Um, and, and especially in relation to how people interact with information they find on the World Wide Web. And the idea here is that because of the way the human brain operates, our pre-established preferences and beliefs directly affect the way we look for information, the way we choose what to interact with and how we understand it, and then what information we remember and repeat. Google absolutely knows this and understands this, and their search algorithms are designed to capitalize on this concept in order to learn and predict what content you'll click on. They maximize your searches <laughs> through uh, your, your efficacy, their ad revenue, uh, through click rates, basically. So how many times you click onto an article and, and into a website, right? Um, so if you and I were to com complete a Google or Bing or whatever search engine um, search for the same keywords, we would get slightly different results based on our individual search and browsing history. These platforms are always trying to present you with information that is consistent enough with your own biases, your own biases and perceptions that you'll accept it, but novel enough that you'll click on it to learn something you didn't already know. So it's always trying to give you new versions of the same old things. And interestingly, Google did not always operate like this because we didn't always have the technology to operate like this. But I remember uh, a time long, long ago when I could search for something and somebody else could search for something and we'd get the same results because all Google did was search. It didn't try right. to prioritize stuff. Right. And and please remember, like, this is an oversimplification of how these things work. Um, I'm not saying that there's never going to be a time when you and I wouldn't get the exact same search results, right. especially if it's not a topic that you and I engage with very often in different ways. Right. If we're searching for white socks for sale, we may very well get the exact same search results. Yeah. But if we're looking for the topics that are a little bit more nuanced, we're likely to get more nuanced search results. So forgive our oversimplification, but we're trying to make a point here. Yeah. Now, let's talk about Facebook for just a minute. In one of our recent From the Headlines episodes, where we talked about the most recent controversy surrounding that platform and social media in general, we broke down how Facebook's machine learning algorithms uh, determine what content that, that you see in your feeds. The TLDR explanation is that these programs are built to show you content that you're most likely to interact with, positively or negatively, and to show you new content that shares characteristics with content that you've interacted with before. 
That means that if you always comment fire emojis on your friend's new profile photos or heart eyes on their posts about their beloved pets, you're going to keep seeing their photos and then probably more photos from friends that you haven't seen in a while because you're likely to interact with those. But it also means that if you always take the bait when you see a troll comment about Trump or comment to correct somebody when they're wrong about your favorite soapbox issue, you're going to see those posts more often too. And yes, in case you're wondering, even a click counts as a response. Even if you aren't headed straight to the comments to make your opinion known, even if all you do is click through to read that article that seems so outrageous, that lets the algorithms know that content like this is going to get you to click on it. And clicking means ad revenue. So when you extrapolate that out, it becomes pretty obvious that the content in your feed is likely to become more and more polarized. Like it's a, it's a snowball. Every step takes you a little further. You'll see tons of the stuff you engage with because you love it. And you'll also see tons of stuff you engage with because it pisses you off. So unless you're a unicorn Facebook user who interacts <laughs> consistently with like information from a variety of perspectives, regardless of how well it reflects your own opinions or makes your proverbial clause come out, um, as time goes on, you're likely, you're less likely, I should say, to encounter varied information organically. It'll have to be something that you more and more specifically try to search out. So everywhere you turn on the internet, uh, you're bombarded with information that reflects what you already believe to be true, which weirdly enough, apparently means that I believe that I should be given photos of <laughs> random B and C list celebrities in their swimsuits every time I log we on. We have got to get to the bottom of this. It I mean, really, I kind of really don't weird. want to because it is hilarious every single time that you text me with more evidence. But it, I feel like for your mental health, we probably need to get to the bottom of this. I have no idea what I did, but like every time I open Edge, uh, <laughs> every time I open it, it pops up on my on my like curated quote unquote news feed front and center some article about some hollywood person or re you know related to a hollywood person in their bikini living their best life and the photos are shocking or right. stunning or elegant or whatever it's always like the same sort of thing it's the weirdest thing i don't know where it comes from i don't like go around searching for celebrities in their swimsuits regardless Right. You're always being bombarded with information that reflects what you already believe to be true, or at least that the algorithm has determined reflects what you already believe to be true. And the algorithms are normally pretty dang good at their job. And when you add that to the filtering that you already do on a subconscious level, and then the filtering done for you by your social groups, you've got what our friends across the pond called a triple filter bubble an environment in which the content you see only serves to reinforce your own perspectives. That's... And that can completely alter how you view the world. Right. It's, it's crazy. Um, and again, I feel like we're going to keep saying probably throughout the rest of the episode, in our episode on this, in our series on that, uh, these episodes will all be linked in the show notes. Uh, you won't have to work hard for them. You won't have to go digging. But a lot of this is just a reflection of things that we've covered multiple times. 
And we have spent a decent amount of time talking about how this kind of echo chamber can impact very dramatically our view of the world around us. Yes. Um, and up to and including uh, to the point where some people will take action based on what they believe to be true. Um, we saw that with the, the Pizzagate conspiracy theory, um, which we've talked about in our conspiracy theory episode. We'll get to that later. Um, so since we know that somewhere around half of, a, of all adults, right, as pulled by the Pew Research Center, get at least some of their news from social media, so that would be Facebook and YouTube primarily, the implications of a filter bubble on someone's perception and understanding of current events could be profound, like we were talking about. If the only news you see either firmly reinforces the ideas that you already have or is so diametrically opposed to those ideas that it triggers a response from you, the chances that you'll encounter information that challenges your current viewpoints in a, in a thoughtful or intriguing or engaging way whatsoever, um, they get smaller and smaller every time you log in. Your view of the world, especially current events, becomes colored by these filters. Right. As a part of our series on conspiracy theories, we talked at length about how these social bubbles contribute to polarization and extremism. The information that we encounter has a direct effect on what we believe to be real, and then what we believe to be real has a direct impact on our behavior. And that concept applies to groups as well as individuals. When we group ourselves together based on our shared beliefs and repeat and reshare information that confirms those beliefs, then we tend to act corporately based on those beliefs. So take the folks that decided to raid our capital, for example. Their filter bubbles created a reality in which the presidential election was being stolen via voter fraud, and the best solution was to physically breach the building in which Congress was certifying the votes from each state. Their beliefs directly impacted their behavior in a deadly way and served as an overwhelming example that our preference for information that confirms our ideas and our inability to process and accept information that falls outside of our very specific scope can lead us down the path to intolerance at best and dehumanization and violence at worst. And just don't ever want to let this go because it's not too late yet, but people are still acting on that mistaken belief. People are still acting on the belief that the election was stolen. And those people are giving politicians the power that they need to change our voting laws in in ways that are detrimental to democracy, not to, mm -hmm. not, to, not to Democrats, right? But to democracy as a healthy and functioning system. And something that we have to accept as Americans is that a democracy means that sometimes you lose. And that's it. And that's okay. But you can't lose your faith that the democracy is working if, if you're firmly held beliefs didn't pan out to be true one time. Right. And it, it, when we spend so much time enveloping ourselves in these 
bubbles and every any layer of these filter bubbles, mm. it becomes harder and harder to believe that things outside of our own perspective, our own values or beliefs can be true or right or good or accurate. Right. Right. It is a, um, a cyclical process um, where you one 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 belief that maybe isn't so extreme that maybe is has a kernel of truth in it or is actually true and has a kernel of falsity that's a word in it right but the person latches on to the false aspect of it builds on the next person's belief that builds on the next person's belief and it just goes around in a cycle until you get something that's truly insane for example like the idea that the media is somehow covering up Jelaine Maxwell and Jeff Epstein's Jeffrey Epstein's I don't I'm not his friend Jeffrey Epstein's nobody's his friend anymore um pedophilia empire right so why are we bringing all of this up right now well it's because Jelaine Maxwell's trial started a week ago as of the time this episode uh, is released um so yes November 29th 2021 Jelaine Maxwell's trial started. And you might be wondering how I know this and why the date is etched into my memory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And I will tell you why. It is because CNN would not stop covering this stinking trial. There were updates every single hour and I was treated with some new development, quote unquote, in the case, which wouldn't normally have been a big deal if there were actual developments in the trial, except that most of the day was dedicated to jury selection. And it was just very boring and repetitive, <laughs> very much yeah. so. Um, and I'm a captive audience at work. So I basically put it on mute. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start at the beginning. Who the hell is Jelaine Maxwell? A lot of people don't know. I didn't know. I feel relatively safe in assuming most people still don't know who this person is or what she has done to warrant an annoying <laughs> amount of coverage from cable news. That's fair. Of those of you who do know who she is, I would hazard that most of you only learned about her in like July of 2020, which is when she was arrested. Or if you had known about her previous to that, I would assume it was because of her ex-boyfriend... <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein and his arrest in July of 2019 or his subsequent death in August. Um, right. I mean, I don't know if yeah. you knew of her before that. Well, I mean, you're either super rich or super questionable or just really, really aware of random goings on in the world. Because well, like me, most people didn't really know or care about her at all. Uh, here's your heads up, friends. In this part of the story, there will be discussion of suicide and abuse and trafficking as we talk about uh, Jelaine Maxwell and how she is connected to this whole process. Right. Um, so I'd also like to say that we're probably going to default to using first names or single names a lot because there are multiple Maxwells in this yes. story and that we're talking about. Um, and in order to differentiate it's just easier that way. It's not because we are somehow related to or know these people whatsoever. It's just easier. Right. Not, it's, on, not yeah. on first name basis. We, we are absolutely not on first name basis. 
Okay, so if you're sensitive to these topics, this is a great time for you to skip ahead a bit until we're back to talking about how this relates to filter bubbles. Hmm. So the reason that most of us had no idea who Jelaine Maxwell was is because she wasn't really anyone aside from being born incredibly rich. And she had really done nothing very noteworthy in her life until we all learned about her, or at least anything that made headlines. Her father, Robert Maxwell, was a Czech-born World War II hero and founder of Pergamon Press. Pergamon Press proved to be an extraordinarily successful publishing house, focusing on science and medical books. He eventually expanded his media empire to encompass British tabloids like The Mirror, and at one point he even held a stake in MTV Europe and American publishing company Macmillan. Her mother was Elizabeth Maxwell, a French-born scholar who focused on the Holocaust and established the journal Holocaust and Genocide Studies in 1987. Jelaine herself was born in 1961 and was the youngest of nine children. Immediately, however, uh, tragedy and, and mystery of a sort uh, became lifelong companions for her because just two days after she was born, her 15-year-old brother was in a car accident that left him in a coma that eventually ended with his death in 1967. Before her death, Elizabeth Maxwell believed that this death, this tragedy, had a long-lasting effect on the entire family. Um, And specifically, it caused Jelaine to exhibit symptoms of anorexia as a toddler. Now, perhaps this tragedy was somewhat offset by the fact that Jelaine grew up in a 53-bedroom mansion in Oxford. Her family owned a yacht named the Lady Jelaine, Uh, And they spent time socializing with aristocrats and royals. Unsurprisingly, she attended, uh, I actually don't know how to pronounce this college name. I think it's Balliol, Balliol College, basically the University of Oxford. It's one of the the schools that comprises uh, University of Oxford. Um, As far as her careers went, um, well, she basically started her life as a socialite and only developed that. She was prominent in London's social scene in the 80s. She founded a uh, women's club. I think it's called like the Kittens Club or something. Uh, Worked at a publication owned by her father and eventually ran a New York-based company that her father established for her. The company Hmm. failed. Uh, It was was something like corporate gifts was the focus of the company. Um, yeah, Yeah, didn't do so hot. Um, She was involved in various philanthropic efforts, but, or at least she, she headed a company that was involved in these efforts. Um, Her name was attached to a lot of them. I'm not sure exactly how involved she herself was. Frankly, wasn't a part of this that I really wanted to research or cared about that deeply. Right. Her name's appended on a lot of philanthropy. Um, Eventually though, she took a position as her father's emissary which is a weird word for a normal human being not working in a government capacity, but that is what it was like <laughs> listed as. Uh, she took a position as her father's emissary to help foster the daily news in New York City, uh, a company that her father had recently purchased, uh, or publication rather. All the while, she continued to develop her reputation and network as a socialite. 
But this is where the story of Jelaine and her family encounters significant tragedy for a second time. Robert Maxwell's financial empire had become unstable. He had overleveraged himself and his debts exceeded his profits. In order to cover, Robert sold part of Pergamon and floated shares of the Mirror Group of newspapers. And this in and of itself would probably have been fine. Uh, but he didn't stop there. His debts were too high, so he also siphoned off about $1.2 billion from a few different sources, two of his companies and his employees' pension funds. It's the kind of maneuver that you'd have to be truly desperate to take. And he took it. The financial difficulties that he faced, the pressures of his media empire, and a bevy of not inconsiderable personal difficulties may have been more than Mr. Maxwell could handle. Facing $5.3 billion of debt, converted to 2021 dollars, and the almost certain total collapse of his empire, on November 5th, 1991, he mysteriously disappeared from his yacht while at sea. Later that day, his body was recovered from the Atlantic Ocean some 100 miles from the route that he should have taken. The autopsy was inconclusive, but unofficially, he was thought to have died by suicide. And this was shocking to those who were closest to him, to say the least. Those who had spoken to him the day before he died said that he was not obviously depressed and was in a perfectly good mood. Now, these are accounts from 1991, of course, and our public education and awareness of what depression and suicidal tendencies look like has really evolved in the last 30 years. But by all accounts, he was not depressed about his business imploding. He was angry. With her father's death, Jelaine was suddenly unmoored. Um, maybe not personally, but at least financially. It takes money to be a socialite with like a capital M, money. Yeah. Like, sure, sometimes you're paid to be famous if you're a Kardashian, um, but this requires a certain willingness to be in front of the camera, metaphorical or literally, right? To be the focus. This never seemed to be Jelaine's style, at least not in the accounts that I could find. Um, she was she was present at all of the parties, uh, but she kind of seemed to view her role as secondary to the people she hobnobbed with or, 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 or more of a, I don't know, a, a enabler is the wrong word, a, a sort of, a, she would help them. She, she was would, a wingman. Basically, she um, she never, I, as far as I could find, and again, I was a child when this was all going down, but as far as I could find, she never leveraged her own fame for her own like direct benefit. It was always about connecting and who she knew and meeting people and getting them in touch with each other. Um, so she was never really the focus of the limelight. She was more of an accessory too. And when her father died, the source of her income dried up. Relatively speaking, she was left with $100,000 a year to live on, which isn't nothing, uh, but it's rather lean for New York City and certainly not enough to run with high society. Um, enter Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein was wealthy when Jelaine met him, which was either in the 80s because her father introduced him to Epstein or in the 90s at a totally different time, not involving her father. It's weird. There are yeah. a lot of conflicting 
reports and and conflicting information, not just on how they met, right, but their whole relationship. It's just tangled. Regardless, he was rich. She knew rich people. She had all the connections. Um, It was a win-win, right? She was able to use his private jet, live in his mansions in New York and Florida, eventually got her own five-story townhouse in Manhattan. It's, it was like 7,000 square feet or something Good in Lord. Manhattan. That's absurd. So um, you feel like 60 people in that. It's huge. I mean, when you grew up in a 53-bedroom mansion, I guess 7,000 square feet is downright cramped. Uh, <sighs> Epstein, for his part, got social cachet. Um, it's, it's really hard to break into high society. Even if you're physically present, it doesn't, necess- doesn't necessarily mean you're accepted into those circles. Um, really, it's basically like being in high school again, right? Oh, you can great. sit with the cool kids, but it doesn't mean you get invited to their parties. Let's just add another thing to the list of reasons I don't want to be rich and part of high society. Right? No I'm thanks. done with high school. I'm good. I'm good. I was done with high school 10 minutes in high, high school. school. Yeah. Right? So the relationship between uh, Jelaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein is often referred to in shorthand as boyfriend-girlfriend or exes, but the reality is more complicated than that. Their relationship was, like we said, deep and tangled, and it didn't end with the romantic portion. For more than a decade, Jelaine managed Epstein's homes, facilitated his social relationships, and recruited an extraordinary amount of masseuses for him. People who were close to the two, either as employees or fellow members of high society, variously referred to her as the lady of the house, half-girlfriend, half-employee, half-best-friend, and fixer, or more to the point, madam. And that last point gets to really the heart of the matter here. When Jelaine was arrested in 2020 on sex trafficking charges, she was accused of helping Epstein abuse multiple teenage girls from 1994 to 1997. Jelaine and Epstein had been in and out of legal trouble for years, but it seemed like they were untouchable until relatively recently. Uh, So a very short timeline of the accusations against the two looks something like... In 2006, police in Palm Beach were investigating Epstein for allegedly soliciting underage girls for sex. From this investigation, he eventually pled guilty to sex offenses, serving jail time in Florida. This triggered an escalation in allegations about Maxwell's involvement in Epstein's misconduct. In 2007, the Daily Mail reported allegations by a woman named uh, Johanna Schoberg that Maxwell recruited her to work for Epstein and that Epstein tried to get her to perform demeaning sexual services. However, the the paper reported, there is no suggestion that Jelaine was aware that some of the girls were underage or aware of Jeffrey's sexual requests. In 2009, Virginia, is it Guffrey? I think it's Guffrey. Um, In 2009, Virginia, we're going to go with Guffrey, uh, filed a lawsuit in which she alleged she was recruited by Maxwell to work for Epstein, who proceeded to sexually abuse her. Guffrey was 15 at the time of the alleged abuses. That same year, the New York Post, which is ever the bastion of well-sourced and supported reporting, um, 
wrote a story saying that Maxwell was served with a subpoena by a lawyer representing some of Epstein's accusers as she left a Clinton Global Initiative conference. In March 2011, Guffrey elaborated on her claims, adding details of more encounters that she had with Maxwell and Epstein. Maxwell issued a statement denying those claims. And then in 2015, Guffrey accused Maxwell in a court filing of engaging in sex with underage girls. So Epstein, you may recall, was arrested in July 2019. One month later, in August 2019, he was found dead in his cell. The death was ruled a suicide, uh, but was surrounded by a series of, of mysteries and weird coincidences um, that triggered a slew of conspiracy theories. Guards failed to follow the procedure to check on him every 30 minutes, instead choosing to browse the internet or doze, which, yeesh, um, one of the guards watching him wasn't even a fully-fledged corrections officer. Uh, he, uh, Epstein was supposed to have had another inmate in his cell, but his cellmate had already or had recently been transferred out. Um, the cameras outside of his cell were malfunctioning. Uh, they, there was footage, but it was recording the wrong area. Like it was, it's just a lot of like all combined. Eh. Yeah, it's a mess. And altogether, it does seem like despite these crazy circumstances, we were and are being asked to believe that the man just up and killed himself without any warning. Except it wasn't without any warning. A month earlier, like immediately after he had been arrested, essentially, he had been found unconscious in his jail cell with marks around his neck. The result of a different apparent suicide attempt and one of the reasons that they were supposed to be following all of these very specific procedures. Yeah. Now, in, a, in an interview with a psychologist, he said that he, um, he wasn't suicidal. And so I, I think they may have recently taken him off of suicide watch but he was still supposed to have been checked on um but he basically said that he was he called himself a coward and he would never hurt himself like that basically because he he didn't like the pain um (laughs) okay any other person on the planet and i personally think this would have been completely ignored uh it would have just been another jailhouse tragedy there are thousands and thousands of them that happen every year and we don't care about them people who have done equally horrible things that kill themselves not to be you know cold about it but this was jeffrey epstein and epstein is connected to everyone who is anyone thanks to jelaine jelaine introduced him to the clintons jelaine introduced him to trump Jelaine introduced him to everybody. Epstein had developed close relationships through his his interactions with Prince Andrew, Bill Clinton, and the the Clintons in general, Um, Elon Musk, Donald Trump, L Brand's CEO Lex Wexner, billionaire Leon Black, Kevin Spacey, Chris Tucker, former Secretary of Labor Alexander Acosta, Peggy Siegel, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, MIT Media Lab Director Joey Ito, uh, Bill Gates, former U.S. Virgin Islands Governor John P. DeJong, Barclays CEO Jess Staley, Apollo Global Management CEO Leon Black, to name just 
a small sampling, like a few. These are all wealthy, connected people. And understand that we're not saying that all of the connections to Epstein here are somehow nefarious or involved uh, sexual abuse or or human trafficking that Epstein um, facilitated, right? Some were business associates. Some traveled to his private island with him for whatever reason. Um, some were a blend in between the two. We don't know. What we are saying, however, is that Epstein was connected to a lot of people in very high positions of power. And if these people were involved in these allegations, they could stand to lose quite a lot if Epstein's wrongdoings were to come to light. Angelaine is alleged to have been involved in this behavior at every stage. Right. Now, you've probably heard a lot about that second part of the story. And here's where the filter bubble concept comes in. From what we can tell from our various news and social media feeds, there seems to be one entire group that has reduced the situation surrounding Maxwell and Epstein to proof that all liberals are debaucherous. Please remember, this is a conspiracy theory. So the conspiracists tend to ignore the many non-liberal names on the list of people that Epstein knew. You know, like Trump, although technically at that time he was considered a liberal, which is its own mess. Yeah. Some of them even allege that Trump's friendship with Epstein was part of a long-running operation to uncover the the pedophilia ring that the elites used, right? It honestly doesn't make a lot of sense, except for the centering of Trump in the weirdness of QAnon. But regardless, this idea gained wild notoriety in the early days of those QAnon conspiracy theories, when the Pizzagate conspiracy theory came to the forefront. Uh, We included a decent overview of that theory in our conspiracy theory series. That's hard to say. (laughs) Why did I write that? But in case you've never heard of it, The Pizzagate theory held that various well-known and politically connected liberals were running a satanic pedophilia and child sacrifice ring out of the basement of a D.C. pizza shop. Yeah, all of those words. And then, yeah, as that theory gained popularity, a wide range of prominent figures were connected with it, and it became the supposed catalyst behind the promised arrest of many Democratic politicians, including Hillary and Bill Clinton. A dude and even shot up a pizza shop in yeah. D.C. because he was going in to rescue the kids in the basement. Like, this was a thing. Yeah. And, and we know that the QAnon family of conspiracies became a favorite talking point of many conservative politicians and pundits across the country. As time progressed, the themes of debasedness and general disregard for human life became consistent in both news and opinion pieces from the far right. When the allegations against Epstein and Maxwell began to take shape and the pair was arrested, many on the conservative side of the political aisle pointed to the case directly as evidence that theories like Pizzagate were not so far off base. Which, okay, fair, right? Conspiracy theories are often grounded in truth, and they, they, they wouldn't be so enticing if they didn't strike a chord, right? Didn't, didn't hit the right note every so often. And that's one of the reasons they're so effective. But there's 
one really huge problem with using the Epstein and Maxwell case as a justification that your conspiracy theory is on point. It completely ignores the importance and humanity of the victims in this case. Remember, we mentioned earlier that one of the very real outcomes of a filter bubble is that it, it easily dehumanizes and ostracizes the other perspective. The other is something that we talk about thematically on the podcast, the group <laughs> that is not your own, the outsiders. In the cases like this, when, when there are people involved who have been harmed significantly, it allows us to remove ourselves from connection to the reality of the story enough that we then completely gloss over the fact in favor of the point that we are trying to prove. We forget that there are real people who are real victims here, and we treat it more like a, a Hollywood movie. Right. And this, this isn't the only time that we see this pattern either. When protesters clashed in Charlottesville and a white supremacist drove his car into a crowd, the dominant conversation themes did not revolve around the victims. They focused instead on defending the political perspectives and contemplating the rights of each side. When we see conversations about immigration on the southern border or refugees coming to America, those conversations are often debating the political ideologies driving each side's opinion or extremist what-if scenarios. Rarely do they focus on the people who are attempting to enter our country and the reasons that they might be doing so. And this is exactly what we're seeing right now with the Maxwell trial. Instead of focusing on the dark realities of trafficking or centering the experiences of the victims, we're seeing this case used as just another piece of evidence that the liberals are morally corrupt and cannot be trusted. It's a political weapon rather exactly. than a look at one of the darkest sides of humanity. Right. And, and it's being weaponized in several different ways. It's not just one way. Um, the conspiratorially inclined are spreading rumors across social media saying various things to the effect of the judge isn't allowing press coverage of the trial or that Biden has somehow wrangled the suppression of the trial via his appointment of Judge Allison J. Nathan to the New York Second Circuit Court. Like, it's, huh. yeah, right? Isn't that, a, that's a wild one. Um, Allison, of course, overseeing the case, or rather, excuse me, the Honorable Judge Nathan <laughs> overseeing the case. Um, now, if you found yourself in a bubble in this, this media, internet, filter bubble that continually stated that this is all being covered up, you may actually believe that a media-wide gag order had been issued or that the media is being prevented from covering the proceedings because that's all you're seeing. And the sources you are seeing reporting it um, are sources that you are inclined to believe for whatever reason, right? But the thing is, it's just simply not true. You'll never see the fact that it's not true, though. What's really happening is you won't, the, the, the algorithm, the bubble won't show you this instead mm -hmm. of the media won't show you this, right? I mean, for one, these social media posts are almost invariably from just people, like, like UFC fighters, 
because they're popular or something like they have a following. So they say something and people pick it up because they have a large following or Joe Rogan or somebody on his podcast who don't have insight or authority to make any declaration or claims, um, but still pontificate rather recklessly about what the cause might be even if they do couch it in terms with of like i'm not a professional or i'm not a doctor or i'm not this or that right those things don't matter when the audience weights the presenter overall very favorably right, right. you can put all of the caveats you want in front of well i'm not you know an expert but i would say And people are only going to hear the I would say part of that and run with that, right? Mm -hmm. Or they're just random people on Twitter, just random people with they don't even have a blue check mark. It's just a dude who posted something who I mean, they're relative nobodies speaking generally, not saying they're not not important. They're just (laughs) nobody who happened to tweet something that confirmed what a lot of people already but thought or believed about any sort of circumstance without any evidence, right? They just they just said something that confirmed what a lot of people already thought. And and the people take this and they tend to cite each other so that wild claims and the support for them are just based on other wild claims with equally unsubstantiated support. It would be like if Fireside Breakdowns uh, cited Robin, the person, for a claim, and then John cited Fireside Breakdowns to make a slightly more nefarious claim, right? And then Robin cited Fireside Breakdowns to support her original claim, plus whatever John had claimed. It's all coming from the same source. It's circular reporting. But because various people have said the same thing, it looks more believable it looks more legitimate Mm -hmm. and it just snowballs so on and so forth until the whole thing is just a house of cards built upon blind faith and a lack of skepticism right i mean we saw that in our in our series on um where we took out took a look at the martyr made thread we finally found a document where he cited all of his sources but what he cited were just equally wild claims yeah from opinion writers on conservative websites who also did not cite any evidence or they cited another opinion writer on another conservative website. It's that same kind of circular logic. Yeah. And and that's, I mean, that's really what the echo chamber is. It's not just hearing the same idea over and over again. It's hearing those ideas and then believing them because people are parroting each other and giving it more credibility than it actually deserves because there was none to begin with. So just for the record, this is not the focus of this episode, but because <laughs> I don't want to bring it up and then not answer, uh, there is no media-wide ban on coverage of Jelaine's trial, if that wasn't clear from the fact that I literally could not escape it last week. Reporters are allowed in the courtroom in accordance with federal guidance on COVID. I know... I have witnessed this because they come outside the courtroom and they report on what they saw. The uh, the defense attorney asked juror so-and-so such-and-such. And, such and, such and uh, remember, I saw a lot of jury selection. So Which regardless, I'm they fascinated have... fascinated by. 
I'm fascinated yeah, well, by jury selection. I'm fascinated by it for like, you know, an hour a day, but not six. Right. Um, that's fair. So, yeah, it's just it's it's there is coverage there. You can find it every as far as I've been able to discern. Every major media outlet has a reporter on scene covering it. Um, also, uh, let me see. Oh, yeah. Reporters themselves, they're allowed into the courtroom. <laughs> they're not just there on scene. They're allowed to go in in accordance with federal guidance on covid measures Um and what's not allowed in, rather, what's not allowed in are cameras and photographers, which are almost never allowed in federal court proceedings except under very specific circumstances. This is nothing new. And none of those circumstances are because of public interest. It's just because a trial is popular does not mean that a judge is going to break or at least uh, suspend certain rules so people can watch the whole thing. Um that is actually like that's a law it's cited not a law it's an actual rule a federal rule um that guides uh broadcasts uh if from the courtroom right it used to be for radio broadcasts but now it's it's literally any 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 sort of broadcast including like i said photography or cameras uh when things are allowed in when when broadcasts are allowed from the courtroom uh it's in a civil case as far as I can tell, it seems to be that it's, it's sometimes done in civil cases, but never in a criminal case. And Maxwell's case is criminal. But that doesn't mean that this trial isn't being used and abused and filtered to influence your perception. Just because it's being covered doesn't mean that you are not being manipulated by that coverage. Exactly. I mean, actually, the... Uh the fact that we are only getting interpreted and um, repeated experience of what happened in the courtroom actually makes it a lot easier to do that filtering and that manipulation. Um, you can you can bet your sweet bippy, to borrow a phrase from my mother, that the media on both sides of the political spectrum is doing their part to make this case about the other side. Headlines from the right read, Jeffrey Epstein visited Clinton White House at least 17 times, and Jelaine Maxwell trial, Trump, Clinton, Prince Andrew name-dropped during Epstein pilot testimony. Headlines from the left are reading things like, Jeffrey Epstein introduced me to Trump at 14, Jelaine Maxwell accuser says, or Jelaine Maxwell deposition portrays her as combative, loyal defender of sex offender. Everyone has their own picture to paint of what is going on in this case, but none of it is focused on the trauma that is caused to the victims. It's not focused on the reality of human trafficking or how this case might impact how we protect women and children from circumstances like this in the future. And I hope that everybody realizes that that is a really big problem, huge, huge problem. Because this should be an opportunity for people of every political perspective, every religious perspective, every socioeconomic perspective to come together and determine what we can learn from this case. We should be looking for risk factors and warning signs. We should be focusing on the victim's stories and looking for ways to draw attention to situations like theirs. We should absolutely not 
be using this situation as a sparring match over the moral aptitude of rich people or liberal people or conservative people. That cannot be what this trial is about. This can't be an opportunity for each side to prove that the other one is more corrupt. This is not political. It's criminal. Yeah. And we are... All of us who do not continue to repeat that refrain are contributing to this being used as a political cudgel. And that is an extreme disservice. So It's the worst. It is the worst. Um, that's, that's about our time for the day. So we're going to go ahead and wrap our coverage here of that. I don't have a cool segue into our bump mainly because i don't i don't want to undercut the importance of robin's final thought there so if you appreciate what we do you can find us uh you can find us at firesidebreakdowns.com there you can send us a message you can see all of our sources you can see our show notes which is basically a, a a write out a cited write-out of, of our show um, with all of the sources that we use from it. Uh, and you can find our social media links there as well. Most importantly, you can... Well, I don't want to say most importantly. Don't get me wrong. Uh, we have a Patreon where uh, if you feel like you would like to support us monetarily, you can. We have different levels. I think the lowest level is like $2 a month or something like that um, to pitch in. Uh, We're trying to bring up enough capital so that we can bring on our first staff person to help us uh, edit these things because it is time consuming. However, the one action item that I, I have for you that I would love if you did, if you did nothing else, please, please leave us a review. Leave us a review. There's a link in the description. There is a link in our show notes. There's a link on our website. Um, please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen on. iTunes. Uh, I don't think you can leave a review on Spotify, you actually, can't. which is unfortunate. Uh, Podchaser, whatever it is. Stitcher. I, we're on like everything. I think we're on everything. Pandora. So just if you can leave a review, please leave a review. It does so much good. It, it, is, it does an exponential amount of good for yes. the show if you leave us a solid review. Yes. And if you are on a platform in which you cannot leave a review, if you we, um, we are on Facebook podcasts. So if you would be willing to share an episode of the show with your thoughts and opinions on it, that would do that same exponential repeat for us. That would be fantastic. Indeed. So. Yes, I feel like uh, this was a really heavy episode, um, and we always do try to tie our good news to our episode topic, so I'm really ready for some good news that is relevant to this conversation. We have good news that is relative, relevant to this conversation, um, and it is fresh. It's hot off the presses, like as of two days ago nice. uh, at the time of recording. Uh, three days ago <laughs> when everybody listens to this. So on <laughs> December 3rd, uh, 2021, the Biden administration updated the national action uh, plan to combat human trafficking to allow it to better address underserved individuals, families, and communities. 
the plan itself serves as a framework to integrate federal response to human trafficking, meaning that it makes it easier for government organizations to work together to address the issue. The plan focuses on four main pillars, uh, prevention, protection, prosecution, and partnerships. And among many, many other things, a selection of what it, what it helps, um, it enhances education and outreach efforts, including for at-risk populations. It enhances community-coordinated responses to human trafficking. It strengthens efforts to identify, prevent, and address human trafficking in global supply chains. Um, it identifies and engages with victims in a victim-centered, trauma-informed, and culturally competent manner because how you talk to somebody uh, who is from, uh, say, Missouri that has been trafficked uh, for, for labor or, or sex, whatever it is, will be different than how you talk to somebody who is from Afghanistan who has been trafficked. There are different cultural implications to those things. Um, and so you have to focus on the victim's perspective and how to talk with them about that. Um, and then it seeks, it also seeks to, to protect victims of human trafficking from incarceration and fines and penalties for unlawful acts committed as a result of being subjected to trafficking. Um, so there, it, it creates a pathway for leeway, um, because, Prostitution, for example, is a crime in many places, and if you are forced to, to do that against your will, it is not very just to punish you right. for something that was done against your will. You want to take some of the rest or the rest? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the plan will also increase access to social services for victims of human trafficking to increase both short and long-term stability. We know that these people tend to have very unstable lives because, well, because trauma. Um, and so they, the access to these social services is hugely important for them. Hmm. It improves coordination among law enforcement agencies to increase accountability for human trafficking for the actual traffickers and the people who are complicit to the process. It enhances efforts to bring traffickers to justice by deploying a broad range of tools, including, wherever appropriate, financial sanctions, federal contracting suspension and debarment, and even travel restrictions. It hopes to deepen our understanding of human trafficking networks that primarily impact or operate in the United States. And then it will strengthen federal anti-trafficking efforts through external partnerships, including with companies in the private sector, civil society organizations, and actual survivor input. Yeah. And that's actually a, a curated list of the goals. It is. Right. It does much, much, much more than that. Um, if you want to read the full contents of the uh, the National Action Plan to Combat Human Trafficking, uh, there is a link in our show notes that will take you directly to the PDF. It is 66 pages. That's uh, a lot of pages. Be, be warned. Uh, but it is, it is, I would say, a very comprehensive plan uh, to make an actual impact uh, in human trafficking. So never let anybody convince you that the government isn't doing anything about this, that the people in power aren't doing anything about this. We have tangible policy and outcomes to point to that show that we do actually try to 
to do something about this. This is a priority. It is something that is getting attention. Maybe it's not getting enough, but that is very, very different than it not getting any whatsoever. Exactly. And this should um, hopefully go to show that this is not a partisan issue either. We've seen, uh, we have seen high-ranking politicians on both sides of the political aisle working hard to take action to combat human trafficking. So again, this is not a partisan issue, no matter how much our individual filter bubbles on both sides want us to think that it is. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, So that is it for this week. I think we have a... A fulsome episode of high-quality content, a veritable smorgasbord (laughs) of nutrition for your consideration. Um, And until we come back with another platter of just over-full Thanksgiving informational leftovers, (laughs) take care of each other. (laughs) 